Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. Hello, welcome along. I've checked my watch and the calendar and I make it time for us to explore the universe. It's a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. Thank you for joining us. This is the only show that lets you fully explore and find out all the secrets lurking around the solar system. So much science to discover this week. We'll head to Mars with the Deep Space High crew to chat how they spot how hot the red planet is. The thermostat says minus five degrees Celsius. That's as cold as winter on Earth. The temperature on Mars changes around 70 degrees each day in the summer and more in the winter. Any ideas how we solve the problem? Keep the rover warm with a nice woolly scarf. I don't think that's going to be enough. And you can hear from animal expert Jess French off the telly. She's on to talk about animals and her new book, Pets and Their People. And they really thrive on social interaction. And so they want your approval and they want to be with you all the time. Whereas a cat is quite often happy to just go and sit on its own and, and, and do its own thing. And I've got your questions to answer this week. They are on bones and the mystical, magical northern lights. It's all on the way in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start with your science in the news. And we're staying up in space for these today. The US space agency NASA have named the four astronauts who will take humans back to the moon for the first time in 50 years. Christina Koch will become the first woman astronaut to ever go to the moon. Victor Glover is the first black astronaut to ever go to the moon. Reed Wiseman and Jeremy Hansen make up the four. They'll fly a capsule around the moon late in 2024. Also, an ultra-massive black hole around 33 billion times the mass of the sun has been discovered in the sky. Scientists from Durham University say it's the biggest black hole ever found. It's very exciting. It's rare and exciting. Scientists still aren't sure how they're made. They think it might be because of dying stars or merging galaxies when the universe was first born. And get this, it's taken the scientists about 20 years to confirm that it's actually around. I love this story. It's amazing how long it takes some scientists to to, to find things out. It's brilliant that they see a little bit of light in the sky and they really probe to look into what is causing it. And this one is a huge black hole. And finally, a radio signal is detected from an alien planet 12 light years away. That's happened. Experts have picked up coherent radio signals from the planet, which suggest it has a magnetic field. It's from a rocky planet called YZ Seti B. And this is important because magnetic fields are really essential for life. So if it's got a magnetic field, well, then maybe (gasps) aliens might be there. Let's spin the wheel of the A to Z of engineering now. For the last few weeks, we've been looking up how things are made. Right the way from A to Z. Every layer of the alphabet with Engers, our engineering expert. We've learned everything from acoustics to zoos. And we're spinning the wheel to find out what letter Engers will teach us about this week. Hello and welcome to another Engineering Academy, where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel. 
It's C. And C is for chemical engineering. Thanks, Engers. We know that engineers are great at making stuff and coming up with brilliant things. But these don't have to be massive motors or giant structures. Some engineers use the tiniest building blocks of all to create new types of suites, toiletries, medicines and textiles. In fact, almost anything you can think of. They're called chemical engineers. To find out more, over to you, Engers. First up, a little 101. It's important to know that chemical engineers are different to chemists, although they have a lot in common. Chemistry is the study of matter, what it's made of, how it interacts with other matter, and how to combine it to form different compounds. Chemical engineers design processes to transform the raw materials that chemists discover into things we use every day. For example, a chemist might discover a new type of adhesive and a chemical engineer will figure out how to make a large amount of it and what sorts of products it could be used for, determining whether it might end up being bottled as a glue or applied to paper to make tape. Chemical engineers also oversee the processes of making these products and are often involved in the construction of chemical plants, as well as their daily operations. Got it? Great! When you think about it, chemical compounds are everywhere. Look around you. Your bedside table, the clothes you wear, the plates you eat off, your mobile phone. Even your home's doors and window frames can be made up of chemical compounds. And if you know how to change and combine these compounds, you can make all sorts of things. Whilst there are an almost infinite number of possible compounds, around 350,000 have been registered for our everyday products. And that's a lot of building blocks to play with. Some chemical engineers make new materials, like biodegradable types of plastic, or lightweight but strong carbon fibres to help planes and space rockets go faster. Others work in laboratories, say creating new flavours for ice creams and chocolates. Lavender flavour, anyone? And then there's a large number in the pharmaceutical industry, making new medicines to treat and cure diseases. Many of whom will work in laboratories, others with computers, software and AI to analyse the results of experiments. Before a chemical engineer brings these materials to production, there's plenty of experimentation in the laboratory to ensure products can be produced efficiently. Chemical engineers are therefore highly knowledgeable in mathematics and chemistry. They also need to be analytical, commercially aware and able to work well under pressure. Some of the latest innovations being developed by chemical engineers include new technologies within fuel cells, hydrogen power and nanotechnology, things like ultra-strong fabrics for cars, compatible materials for medical implants, and electronics for military applications. To help understand what chemical engineers do, let's dive deep into a material we use every day, plastic. Plastics are just, well, plastic, right? Wrong! There are many different types of plastics. Some have been designed by chemical engineers to be very strong, like those used in cars, whilst others are more flexible, like shopping bags. Some are good insulators, others might be resistant to UV or are biodegradable. And you might have noticed that you can't recycle all plastics. That's because they have different chemical makeups. 
So it might be a puzzle why we still use plastics. Well, whilst engineers are working towards a more sustainable future, often the benefits of a compound, like those used to make medical tubing and plasma bags, are thought to outweigh the disadvantages of them not being recyclable. These are all things engineers have to consider when developing new materials. Thanks, Engers. If you'd like to find out more about chemical engineering and meet the team at Innovin, head over to the Fun Kids website. And that's our take on the letter C. It's been cracking. If you'd like to check out some other types of engineering, why not check out civil, computer, or cable engineering? Engineer Academy. Let's get to your science questions then. If you've any, ever got anything sciencey that you want answered on this show, maybe it's something you heard at school and you thought, oh, is that really right? I'll ask Dan on the podcast. I can make that happen. Best way is to leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com like this. Why, when you get old, why do your bone, bones break more easily? Edward, thank you for sending this in. Well, bone tissues, which help make up your bones, they're broken down and they are rebuilt all of the time. You're constantly regenerating like Doctor Who. As you get older, you lose more bone than you build. You stop making this new bone tissue, which makes them weaker and it makes them break easier. And when they're broken, it makes them slower and tougher to repair. It's kind of a vicious circle. And because older people can sometimes find it harder to move and stay balanced, it makes it maybe easier for them to fall which makes the bones break easier, which makes them weaker, which makes you fall more. It is this really vicious cycle, Edward. Thank you so much for the question. Uh, Let's get another one on. Hi, my name's Sebastian. My question is, how are the Northern Lights formed? Bye. Sebastian, thank you for this. The Northern Lights also appear on the South Pole, up here in the Northern Hemisphere, where I am. It's called the Aurora Borealis. Now, normally these are around the poles at the top and bottom of the Earth. If you're in the UK, you might have heard recently that you could see them over quite a lot of this country. Now, it's amazing how they're made and there's a lot that goes into it. So listen up. The sun makes something called solar wind, which are electrically charged particles, tiny protons and electrons that drift through space. When those particles hit the Earth's magnetic field, that pushes the solar wind north and south towards the poles, which is why we normally get the northern and southern lights there. When it hits our poles, it gets into the atmosphere around Earth. It's a big blanket of gas that surrounds us. And when the particles from the solar wind moves into that atmosphere, it releases energy, which we see through those bright, stripy, colourful lights that fill the sky, the Aurora Borealis. There's a lot that goes on. Here's a brilliant way to imagine it, right? It's all to do with energy and how it moves. Imagine you have a bottle of fizzy drink and you give it a good shake. It puts lots of energy into the bottle because all the gas inside is expanding and the particles are moving around. When you open that bottle, the energy is released, isn't it? It fizzes up in this big stream of bubbles. It's the same way. The protons and electrons from the sun shake up the particles in the atmosphere and they have to let out all that energy in the form of light. Here's something very exciting. Do you remember last year we made history? We sent your voice to space in a once in a lifetime radio program called Mission Transmission. We beamed it from planet Earth 
last year and it's still going. It's still hurtling across the universe, this radio program travelling at the speed of light. Well, that radio program has been shortlisted as a Radio Times moment of the year in the UK. So the show that you starred in, that you helped us make, is up for an award. So you can help us make radio history once more. You can win an award with us. You can vote for Fun Kids Mission Transmission to be crowned that Radio Times Moment of the Year. Now, voting is free and there's a link to the vote on the Fun Kids website. I would love you to get involved. Just it takes like two seconds. Give us a quick vote because it will help us make history once more with Mission Transmission, just like we did when we sent the first ever radio program to space. Try and vote for us in the Radio Times Moment of the Year Award at funkidslive.com slash vote. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! For this week's Dangerous Dan, where we look at some of the most mean, amazing and strange things in the universe, we're headed to the south of Europe. Let's go across Spain and into the tip of Africa, where you'll find the Spanish ribbed newt. It's green in colour, it's a newt, and it's the largest newt in Europe. And it's got an incredible way of defending itself. Do you remember last week we spoke about that lizard that shoots blood through its eyes? as a way of warning off predators. Well, that's inspired me to look at other brilliant ways that animals defend themselves. This newt uses its bones for weapons. When it's attacked, it shifts its ribs forwards at an angle. It pushes them through the skin. That means it gets a row of spikes all along its body. So anything that wants to eat the newt has to go through a row of sharp spikes running across its skin. Here's what's amazing. Even though this happens quite a lot, it causes no real harm to the newt. It's a fantastic way of defending itself, and it means the Spanish ribbed newt goes straight onto our Dangerous Dan list. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. We're talking about animals, about wildlife, about a brand new book called Pets and Their People with Dr Jess French, who joins us. Jess, thank you for being there. Hello. Thanks for having me. So just tell us, what made you want to write a book about pets? Because humans have had animals, have lived with animals for thousands of years. What made you want to write a new book about it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, animals have been part of our lives for such a long time. And animals have always been an an enormous part of my life. I've always had pets growing up. Um, I am a vet. And so my work is to help people looking after their pets. And I just think the, the bond between people and their animals is so important and worth celebrating and worth, you know, doing right. So I wanted to, to make sure that people knew how to really care for the animals in their, in their care. And the book is it's about humans and animals and what ones we can live best with and, and how we get on with animals. Mm. Where did you start like researching? Obviously, you're a vet, so you know a lot of this anyway. But where did you start? Which creatures did you know that you wanted to write about? Oh, I don't know. I wanted to write about all of them. Um, I, I guess it was informed a bit by my work as a vet. I sort of thought about the the animals that, that came in to see me. And also I've had quite a, a large selection of animals as pets myself. So some of it was based on sort of my, my growing up and the animals that I'd kept. And yeah, the, the more I looked, the more weird and wonderful animals people seemed to keep. 
Well, let's start with the obvious ones then. Cats and dogs. I have a cat who is sleeping just behind me, actually. Oh. Yeah, when, when she's not scratching and biting me. But well, how do we... <laughs> how, because cats and dogs are very different in the way they behave, in their temperament. How, how, how do us as humans need to kind of treat cats and dogs differently if they are our pets? What, what do we need to do to make sure they're both as happy as they can be separately? So the key to keeping any animal happy in your home is to think about the wild animal that it's come from. So for example, a dog, that would be wild wolves. Obviously, dogs are, are quite a specific example because they've lived with us for so long and we've bred them for so long that actually the dogs that we keep in our houses are quite far from their wild wolf counterparts. But a lot of the animals that we keep in our care are quite similar to their wild counterparts. So you have to think about how they would interact with other animals of their species in the wild, what they would eat, what kind of environment they would be in. And if you think about all of those things, then you can start to build up a picture of, of what would make them happy in our homes and, and the kind of conditions we need to keep them in and why they're all so different. So for example, the cats that we have in our homes mostly came from desert environments and lived on their own. So quite often, I mean, <laughs> there are some individuals that are different, but quite often cats like to be on their own. They don't like to have people in their faces, whereas dogs, they're pack animals and they really thrive on social interaction. And so they want your approval and they want to be with you all the time, whereas a cat is quite often happy to just go and sit on its own and, and, and do its own thing. <laughs> Does that ring true to you? Yeah, ab- absolutely. <laughs> we'll go through a few of the things. I'm just interested with my cat in a second. But it's amazing how like the animal that I have has never been in a desert, won't know what a mm. desert is. Her ancestors who were in deserts were thousands of years ago, but yeah. those traits are still left over. That must have been amazing for you to look up when you're researching the other pets that are in the book? Yeah. So, I mean, things that were domesticated more recently, um, certainly those traits are much more obvious. Um, And some things, you know, you you can't breed out of an animal. For example, hamsters are are nocturnal. And so uh, people sometimes come into me in the vets and say, all my hamster does is sleep all day. When, and I was like, well, yes, because they come out at night. That's, you know, they're nocturnal animals. So some traits like that, we just, we can't breed out of them. Um, and dogs, as I was saying before, you know, they've they've developed with us over thousands and thousands of years. And and now if we tried to put our dogs out in the wild where, where wolves live, I don't think they'd stand a chance because they, you know, they're used to having their cozy beds and us feeding them. Um so it does depend how recently uh, how how recently they were uh, domesticated, and also to what degree we've tried to change them. So dogs we've bred together, you know, really quite extremely sometimes to to change the way they look. I mean, we have such a wide range of different looking dogs of different sizes, from a tiny Chihuahua to a, a huge Great Dane, and they look really quite different to the wolves that they came from. But some of the reptiles, the snakes and lizards and, and some of the birds that we keep as pets really haven't changed that much at all compared to the to the animals they come from in the wild. When you were looking up different pets and their owners for the book, um, what, what creatures were you really surprised that people had as animals in their home? Um, 
Oh, I have seen quite a lot as a vet, so it was going to take quite a lot to surprise me. Um, but I was quite surprised just how many people keep invertebrates as pets. So that's things like uh, stick insects, praying mantis, scorpions, tarantulas. Um, yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of things, but not all animals are suited to being pets. So some of it was a bit a bit sad as well to see, you know, people bringing animals into their homes that, that really they weren't happy to be there. Um, so, you know, I, I've written the book to sort of explain which animals do make appropriate pets and, and also the fact that some are probably just not happy living in our homes with us. As a vet, you must meet thousands of different types of creatures. Is there any animal that still makes you a bit squeamish that gives you the kind of heebie-jeebies when you see one now? I don't think there is. Not really. I mean, I grew up having tarantulas and scorpions and things like that as pets, um, as well as chickens and, and dogs and cats. So, um, I mean, I have a healthy respect for the ones that could hurt me. And, you know, even dogs, you don't know how they're going to react when they come into a, a new environment. You know, you, you do have to be on guard that you're not going to get injured by these animals because they do, after all, have big, sharp teeth and claws. And, and you know, they can be quite frightened and in pain when they come in. So I'm respectful of all animals, but I, I just love them all. <laughs> well, you can learn loads more about different creatures in this new book, Pets and Their People. Uh, Dr. Jess French, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Deep Space High, Destination Mars. Afternoon, everyone. We're in the robotics laboratory today because we're going to start getting to grips with designing a robot that can withstand the conditions on Mars. Like the ExoMars rover? That's one of the robots they're sending to Mars in the next few years. That's right. We'll be looking at the ExoMars rover's design features to learn more. Now, zip up, everyone. The demo's about to begin. It's so cold, so cold, so cold. It's freezing. That's right. The temperature is now minus 75 degrees Celsius. That's the temperature of a Martian night in the middle of summer. Summer? Remind me not to book a holiday to Mars. Now, have a look at some of these materials. As you can see, the icy temperatures are making them stiff and brittle. I don't think they'll be much good on a Mars rover. I suppose you need to build the rover out of strong and heavy lumps of metal. Not if you want to get it off the ground. That's right, Stats. Whilst the materials have to be strong to withstand those temperatures, they also need to be light. Moving a heavy object takes more energy than a lighter one, and the rover will need to use its energy carefully. Any idea what materials might fit the bill? Something strong but light? My Neptunian yak cheese munchables? They're certainly strong. They're very light. Anyone want one? <laughs> Not that kind of strong. And no eating in the lab, please. Materials often used include carbon fibre and titanium. But, sir, electrical circuits and delicate instruments might not work at all in those temperatures, even if nothing is broken. Things like electrical circuitry don't like getting hot then cold over and over again. A lot of materials, when they get warm, they expand, and when they get cold, they shrink. And that movement can make the materials weak. That's right. We've experienced how cold it gets during a Martian night. 
Let's turn the temperature up to what it's like during a nice summer's day. Still pretty cold. The thermostat says minus five degrees Celsius. That's as cold as winter on Earth. The temperature on Mars changes around 70 degrees each day in the summer and more in the winter. Any ideas how we solve the problem? Keep the rover warm with a nice woolly scarf. I don't think that's going to be enough, but you're right, Quark. Keeping instruments warm is one way to protect them from the weather. Let's check it out. Some of the power that the rover's solar panels generate is used to heat the interior of the rover, where the instruments are. Some heat is also generated from the machinery itself, that also helps to keep things at a steady temperature. I've read that sometimes radioactive materials are used to power robots. That's certainly true, but radioactive material has to be handled very carefully and it's very expensive. Anything that could be done simply, like recycling heat that's already produced, is cheaper and safer. Not as cheap as knitting a lovely scarf. So we've seen that when building a rover, it's important to choose the materials carefully and think of ways to keep the instruments at a steady temperature and warm enough to keep them working correctly. And without knitting a woolly scarf. Deep Space High, Destination Mars. Support from the UK Space Agency. Find out more at funkidslive.com. And that is it for this week's episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to hear even more, make sure you subscribe at Fun Kids Podcast Plus. We've got an extra long bonus episode with astronomer and sleep expert Mark Thompson. That's just been released and I answer even more of your questions every single month on there. You've heard some brilliant shows today on the podcast. We've got more of those on the Fun Kids app. Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your shows, you can find them at funkidslive.com too. And Fun Kids are our children's radio station from the UK. Hear us all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!